0: Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's go in our Bibles together. We're going to go to Psalm 132 this morning. Psalm 132 is where we are in the Psalms of Ascent. We're going to not complete this psalm today. Uh, this is the longest psalm in our study. In these songs, that would have been songs for the road. Pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem, the feasts, uh, three times a year, they would be going, they would be making their way. And they would sing these songs on the way, and when we, they would be in Jerusalem and in the temple, they would be praising the Lord, and, and these songs elevate, they, they lift up, they're like stair steps up. Then as they would leave, they would be worshiping and reminded, and their hearts would be filled with the praises of God and the wonder of His presence that was expressed and experienced there in Jerusalem. I want to ask a question this morning. How many of you have been present in a room when there was a reading of someone's last will and testament? All right, raise your hand. How many uh, if you've been present in a room when someone's will was being read? All right? 1 2 There's a handful of people. Now, as we come to Psalm 132 this morning, I want to set something out to help us understand a little threshold to this, all right? If you, What makes a difference? If you're listening to a will being read, there's really two factors. What is your relation to the person who passed away? And the other might be, how much were they worth? What was their net worth when they passed away? How much you're listening is, what did they have or who were they to you? And, and if they have precious mementos and Uh, a piano, um, whatever, and you're listening because you love that person. Or maybe you're the attorney and you're serving the family and you're there and you're wanting to do well and so you're listening, you're paying attention. Maybe somebody's in the room and they're taking down the record, they're writing the notes from the meeting. This is what happened, this is what took place. When it comes to Psalm 132, we might be tempted here, centuries removed, about 3,000 years, and here we are all of these years later and we're thinking back, what, is, what do we have to do with David? Well, I mean, David, Songs of Zion. How much is that on our radar when we're in the middle of the pandemic, when we're facing all of these, we're approaching an election, and here we are, are we out of step to be thinking about highest praise in hardest times, and what does David have to do with us this morning? no matter where we are. In today's psalm, we see that God's promised san- plan of salvation, okay? It's the message of the entire Bible, is irrevocably coming through one person and one place. It's coming through a descendant of David and Mount Zion. And this promise, this covenant, is given to David. Now, God's salvation is available to everyone. Everyone. This salvation is available to anywhere that you go, anyone that you meet, but it is exclusively offered through only a descendant of David, chosen city of Zion, representing God's presence on earth. It's through Jesus of Nazareth, a son of David. God sovereignly chose David, and God sovereignly chose Zion. Through David, God's plan of redemption would flow from all peoples from Zion. So if you're here this morning and you have investments, you have shares in a company. I, I worked at Walmart when I was in high school. Part of what they would do is they would give shares to employees, way how many ever years ago. If I had stayed working for that company and my shares continued to increase, those shares would have been worth a lot by now as I'm quite a bit older than when I first worked there. But I went to college, and I didn't continue working there, so I don't have any share in the company. So I don't check Walmart stock that often because I don't have an interest. It doesn't have a personal interest. It has maybe a news article, a headline. It has bearing, but it doesn't have a personal interest compared to 100% of my retirement is in a Walmart or whoever stock. You're going to be watching that stock probably not diversified enough what we need to understand is when it comes to the inheritance through david is it is not a limited supply if you're gathering and a last will and testament is being written uh, read of your parent or grandparent your loved one you're not going to throw wide open the door and say everybody come on in you're going to have a share in here come on there's plenty to go around there's only going to be so much to go around when it comes to God's plan of salvation, we don't get to any country, any ethnicity and say, oh, you know what? We're almost out. There's not enough for you. There is plenty for all. Now, that's the question I want ringing in our ears. What is my share in David? What is my portion in David this morning? Two different times in Israel's history, there were individuals who opted out, all right? They were making the claim, we have nothing to do with David. We don't want to have anything to do. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 20 is the first time in David was alive. This was after Absalom tried and he stole the kingdom for a time. Then Absalom was killed. And then there was this man, and the Bible calls this man in 2 Samuel chapter 20, it calls him a worthless man. His name is Sheba. Sheba was a worthless man in in, uh, 2 Samuel 20 whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikri, a Benjaminite, okay? That's a descendant of Saul. So somebody still wants to go back to the former king and the former king's line, and that's Sheba. And he blew the trumpet, and this is what he said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel." Okay, paraphrase, we're not following this new king, but wait a second, God anointed, ordained, appointed this king. Sheba says, a worthless man, I don't care. I'm still under the old regime, and so he flees to a town. David's men pursue him to this town. Joab takes the army. They get there. They begin to build a siege mount against this town. There's one wise woman, 2 Samuel tells us, and she comes out and she says, can I talk to Joab? What is it going to take for you to not annihilate a town of Israelites? So there's a worthless man. You give him to us, we'll walk away. She goes in, she talks to her city, and she says, let's make a deal. They made a deal. And David's men walk away, and the city is spared. This worthless man was put to death. This worthless man saying, we have no portion in David. We have no share in David. We have nothing to do with David. Another time after Solomon, so you go through David, you go through Solomon's life, and you get to his son in Rehoboam, and we've talked about this in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 10, when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, comes to the throne, In 2 Chronicles chapter 10, there's this question. So Jeroboam, verse 12, and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again the third day. They asked him a question. Led by Jeroboam, what kind of a king are you going to be? And Rehoboam had an opportunity to listen to the older wise counsel, which was be nice to him. The younger said, oh, man, you've got you to gotta cast off your, your dad's reputation. You have to become your own man, paraphrasing here. He opts for the peer counsel. He opts for his friend's advice. And he comes back, and this is what he said on the third day, the king answered. Well, how did he answer? Harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the old men, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. We're going to take it up a notch. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now listen, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king. Here it is. What portion have we in David? What share have we in David? What do we have to do with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. Two different times, one while David was alive. One, it's his grandson, Rehoboam, comes to reign. He treats people harshly. But God has given a promise that it's the Davidic king that will reign and reign forever. And these people, in two different times, say, not for us. God's king, I don't want that king. We'll go to our own place and we'll do our own thing. And I'm thinking, I don't know, does that sound relevant at all that people say, I really don't want God to reign over me. I really don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I really don't want to function under any authority. I kind of just do want to do whatever I want to do with no consequences. Does that, sound, does that have any ring of modernity to us? Does it sound modern at all? Does it sound like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like our nightly news, isn't it? To say we have no share in David, to, sh- to say I have no portion in David, is to say I want nothing to do with God and his salvation. That takes the stakes up quite a bit compared to I just don't have my shares in Walmart anymore. To say I have nothing to do with David and his descendants. Now, in Luke chapter 19, if you go to the New Testament, and I am going to, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at some of these and uh, go with me there, see them, and it will provide opportunities. We cannot cover, I found out in the first service, all of the textual space that this one psalm covers But it's important to have the foundation and those places in Scripture so that as you read in time to come, you're going to have a better understanding of what's going on in these kingdoms. What's going on with these kings? Northern kingdom, not descendants of David. Southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, descendants of David. Jesus would come 2,000 years ago, and in Luke 19, he gives a parable teaching, and religious leaders, the people of Israel, they would have understood what he was saying, that he was just laser-guided teaching to them, to their hearts. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. What was their impression of the kingdom of God? Get rid of Rome. Give us our king back. We haven't had a king since before exile. When do we get our king back? He was there teaching them. Let's see this connect together. And he said, therefore, in verse 12, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens, like Sheba and like Jeroboam, hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. you hear the similarities? It's the very same thing. Jesus, a descendant of David, just as they told David, just as they told Rehoboam, we got nothing to do with David. They're saying again, and Messiah is standing there. And to walk away from Jesus, oh, that no one hears this message and walks away saying, I have nothing, no need of, no interest in, no share in, no concern in my life being brought into the shares of the son of David, of Jesus of Nazareth. Had the Lord not fulfilled his promise to David, then we don't hear anything about angels telling shepherds, you need to go check out, there's a manger and there's a baby in the manger, and this baby is God in flesh. Go worship this baby. And we don't hear anything of his life and his miracles and his teaching and the gospels and a cross and a crucifixion and a death and a burial and resurrection if God had not been faithful to keep his word to David. But God is faithful. And so there is a Savior, and there is salvation And there is available reconciliation so that as we gather at the end of this service this morning, remembering Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was shed, so that we as sinners could be reconciled to a holy God. This is the gospel, and it's in the Old Testament. Psalm 132, the song of Zion. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jer. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back one of the sons of your body, I will sit on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. We really don't know when the psalm was written. We don't know what the situation is surrounding this psalm. We don't know who the author is of this psalm. Some scholars argue well it could be David, could be someone else. The time period that it probably best fits is after the children of Israel came back from exile, captivity they come back, they knew what happened in their history. It talks about the time when the ark was lost for about a hundred years, just out in the country, in the woods. And then David finds it, brings it up, and then plans to build a temple. And then Solomon builds the temple. They bring the ark into the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. And from there, Israel goes down That was the pinnacle of their worship when it was dedicated in Solomon's life and all of his wives and all of his turmoil. And Israel along with just go downward spiral, downward spiral, northern kingdom off to Assyria, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, off to Babylon. Then comes Persia. Then they come back. The temple is rebuilt, but the glory of the Lord is never recorded to come and re-inhabit that temple. And so they go through this long spell of we're here, But we're not here yet. These are not the glory days, and they're waiting on the kingdom. Then comes Rome. Then comes all of the oppression, and they're waiting. Then Jesus comes, and they see the works that he fulfills and all of his miracles. But where's the kingdom, and where's our king, and the power, and the glory, and the might? When do we get our lives back? Now, isn't that the question that we're all kind of thinking right now? When can I go back to normal? When can I do what I want to do? and not have anybody looking at me if I'm wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, if I'm doing this, I'm hand sanitizing enough, washing my hands enough, all of those things, when can we go back to normal? In a smaller way, much larger way, when you're in captivity, Israelites are saying, when can we go back to this is our kingdom, God's kingdom, and we reign over all the earth? And Jesus is standing right there. But they didn't want to buy what he was offering for free. Because it requires humility, repentance, and faith. And they were trusting in their own religious resume. And in their heritage. And he confronted them on that. Last week we saw the song of tranquility in Psalm 131, the Lord is my hope. Today we're looking at Psalm 132, a song of Zion, the Lord is my covenant keeper. The new covenant in my blood is communion. That's what the Lord in the Passover, this is the new covenant in my blood. He is the covenant keeper of his people. So what is the universal significance then? Okay, Universal means it applies to me, and it applies to you, and it applies to everybody of God's covenant with David in Mount Zion. There's a common belief that, you know what, if you grow up in India, then this is how... The people of India believe. If you grow up in uh, the country over here, this is what they believe. These are their gods. And everybody is basically on a different road and they all end up in the same place. Not so according to the creator and not so according to the scriptures and all of the prophets and Jesus, the word and flesh. He said there's only one way to the father and it is through him, John 14, 6. It's only exclusive through David and Mount Zion. So this morning, the first thing we see about David is his legacy. His legacy that David exalted the Lord. This is what is being remembered in Psalm 132. The psalmist is remembering, O Lord. Remember, O Lord. Calling the Lord into remembrance of David, his servant. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Now, here's how this psalm flows, okay? A prayer for David and then we see that it's a it's an appeal for the lord it's it's a call to action and then it, fulfill your promises here's your promises remember your promises it's a prayer does god need to be reminded like we do i forget stuff all the time 2 weeks ago we went to camp sunday service Packed everything up. It was hot that day. I'm soaking in sweat. Getting the camper attached to everything. We get up to Lake Ann. Long day. Campers up where everybody's in their place. And it's time for me to take my contacts out. I look at Ginger. I say, where is my brown duffel bag? She's like, I don't know. Where where is it? Did you pack it? I was like, well, I was working on the camper. Well, (laughs) where's your bag? Oh, it's in my bedroom on the floor. It's got my contact stuff, all my toiletries, underclothes. I'm like, well, this is off to a good week here. She's like, well, you're, you're just starting to be forgetful. like, thank you for reminding me of that, right? Does the Lord need to be reminded? No, he does not. Not like we do. But he loves to be reminded. I mean, if someone loves you, if you have a grandchild, Do you have to be reminded that they love you? Or do you love to be reminded that they come and tell you, I love you, or your children, or your spouse, or your loved ones? If they say to you, I love you. I know, you told me that before. I haven't forgotten, okay? Don't respond that way. I still remember you told me. No, that's not. We love to be reminded of these good things, and so it's remember, oh, Lord. What do we remember? Remember is suffering. He endured hardships. He encountered trials as a shepherd boy. We talked about that last week. Long comes a lion. Long comes a bear. Bam. Ginger showed me this week. We were on, uh, back in 2016, we went to Glacier National Park. We're on one of the trails in the mountains. And this last week or, or the week before, somebody was there taking a video with their family, and a grizzly bear is full sprint after a goat, not from here to the back of the church. And the people are like, uh, paralyzed, like, uh, what do we do? And you can hear someone say, he's going for the goat. And someone else says, oh, thank God, you know, go run, get down the mountain, hurry, get out of here. That's a grizzly bear. David was like, I got it. Give me my lamb back. I did not offer, you know, if I was there on that trail, I'm not going for the goat. I'm like, hey, goat, <laughs> God bless. I'm out of here with my family. I don't stand a chance against a grizzly bear. David would encounter trials. His brothers, man, they messed with him. Eliab, we looked at that last week. Come on, what's, a man, what's in your heart? I know the evil that's in your heart. You little punk brother, Eliab would tell him. You, where's your few sheep? He encountered difficulty from them. You know, Saul, Saul was threatened, tried to kill him all the time, chased him down, threatened by David, God's anointed one. But David also brought suffering on himself. It wasn't just other people externally, you know, animals and beasts and brothers and kings and all of that. He sinned with Bathsheba. That brought suffering. That brought shame. Committed adultery. Led to murder. That was his own doing. He counted the people later in life, and he wasn't supposed to. Someone spoke up and said to him, 2 Samuel 24, we shouldn't do this. And he was like, I'm the king. I'm going to do this. I want to do this. I want to find out how, how great of an army I have. So I'm going to do it. Okay. Caused suffering. He did that. His family was plagued with rivalry. All the wives that he had, the dysfunction in his family, all of those relationships, there were problems. Ammon fell in love with his sister. Absalom killed Ammon. Absalom stole the kingdom. Absalom was put to death. His hair caught in the bough of the tree. David's family, he had hardships, all types of hardships. His enemies plotted against him, Israelites, men like Sheba, descendants of Saul, Benjaminites. And others, Gentiles, Philistines, constantly threatened his life, hardships. Even after he would die, the, the Davidic royal line always under a threat, all the way to the birth of Jesus the Nazareth, and what the last final threat when he was a boy is Herod, putting to death all those baby boys in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem, two and, two and under, The satanic forces against this family and against this line, but God's plan will not be thwarted. God is sovereign. This is what Spurgeon says. There was always an ungodly party in the nation and these persons were never slow to slander, hinder, and abuse the servant of the Lord. I trust that after we've studied these psalms and done some of the in-depth, that when you're reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and Second Kings, 1 and Second Chronicles, that it will open and unfold for you a, an intense amount of meaning because you'll understand better bearing on what you're reading and what is taking place and how glorious God's plan is. We also see David's dedication. His dedication, yeah, we see prayer, that was part of his life. Suffering, that was a part of his life. But dedication. Here in Psalm 132, it says how he swore to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name. That's through Moses the Lord revealed that name and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. That takes us all the way back to Genesis. That's when, when Jacob, when Israel was dying and he blessed his sons in Egypt. And he gave a blessing over Joseph who was ill-treated by his brothers, but yet God used him to save them alive. And jo- Jacob comes to experience, you know, how, you know how this family is still around? The mighty, the mighty one of Jacob. If he wanted his boys to know anything and their descendants, you need to know the mighty one of your father, the Lord When we enter into vows, as David made a vow, he swore to the Lord, he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. We need to be very cautious of entering into vows. Whether you're entering into marriage, covenant, the old English term, the solemnization of vows. This is serious. Anything that would go against marriage, we we stand opposed to. All sex outside of marriage All infidelity, immorality, anything that would attack, denigrate marriage as God ordained it. It hurts the people who are involved. It's not just because we want to point out sin. If you go against God's plan, his plan instituted in creation, the creation order, devastation is the fallout. Divorce hurts the family. It impacts the children because it's not the good, true picture of Christ's love for his church. That's what picture, uh, it it represents, marriage represents, according to Paul, Ephesians chapter 5. And so we stand, hey, if somebody's going to be married, let's go through counseling. Let's talk about this. Let's prepare so that you rightly understand marriage and you enter into this covenant and we rejoice with you. When you give someone your word, hey, I'll be there. Be there. Don't give your word lightly. Say what you mean, mean what you say, and by God's grace, we'll do what we said we were going to do. We follow through. Entering into a, a covenant in church membership. How important is this? For those who would dedicate their children. There have been people are like, I don't know, I I guess it's the thing you do. That's not what we said. We said we're dedicating parents that you're going to rear these children in the family of God. And parents have said, yeah, we'll do that. And not long after, where are they? Where are their children being brought up in a Deuteronomy 6 fashion? So this message today goes out to say, hey, have you made a vow to the Lord like David did? Have you promised the Lord some things? How are we doing on that? Are we walking faithfully in what we said we were going to do? And you say, you know what, Pastor? No, uh, I've broken some vows. I've broken some commitments. I haven't been faithful to the Lord. Is there hope for me? Psalm 132. Because David makes a vow he cannot keep. He promises something he can't do. And the Lord, how does the Lord respond to him? Oh, this is this is intense. This is I love this. Because the Lord did not ask David to build him a temple. This was something, and now go with me to 1 Chronicles 17. In 1 Chronicles 17, this is something that David, out of a love, out of a devotion to the Lord, dedication to the Lord, he's like, you know what? I have an amazing house. It's a beautiful palace. But what about the Lord? He, that the ark is in a tent. We need to do something about this. And so in 1 Chronicles 17, this is the account of what took place. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan, the prophet, that's the same prophet that came to him, confronted him over his sin with Bathsheba. Okay, so obviously he values Nathan. He appreciated that Nathan confronted him in his sin was for his own good. And this is what he says to Nathan. He says, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, in verse 2, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Yeah, but hang on a second. They didn't pray about it. Nathan didn't ask God about it. So that night, the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build a house, build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 7, Now therefore, thus, Nathan, this is what you're going to say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, To be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges, judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. That's important. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast, that's that Hebrew word, chesed, from him, as I took it from him who was before you, that's Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So understand what's going on. In this word, David is told what we saw last week, no. God told him, no. You can't build my house. You've been too violent. Now, how would you respond? How do we respond when God tells us no? We're going to receive the response of David. When the Lord says, "You you can't do this, what does the Lord do? Well, we see this in verse 18, it continues. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? God. And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness. In making known all these great things, there is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things, in driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt." And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever." That's his response to being told no. His legacy is blessing. Okay, Lord. And what he goes to to work in doing in 1 Chronicles uh, 21, he purchased the threshing floor from Ornan, the Jebusite. He didn't conquer it. He purchased it. What's on that threshing floor today? Temple Mount, Dome of the Rock. It belongs to the descendants of David. It belongs to Israel, but there's a time still waiting the coming kingdom. That it arrived with Jesus already and not yet. It is still coming. We still are awaiting the coming of the king, First Chronicles 28. If you turn there just a few chapters later, David charges all of Israel, and then he charges his son before Israel. And I'm just going to move down because here's what he's reminding them. It's a painful reminder. I vowed, I promised, I swore to the Lord I would do it, and I didn't do it. And he doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't put it like we do, the bad things in our lives we just shove it under the rug put it behind us hopefully nobody saw it hopefully it never comes back up again he brings it up i wanted to do this and the lord told me no and my son will do this and i've given everything he even gave his king's treasure chest in the giving of this and just um in first chronicles 28 verse 9 here's what he says to solomon and you solomon my son Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Now listen to a father, to his son. Be strong and do it. Verse 20, same chapter, First Chronicles 28. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And David would die and in first chronicles it comes to the end we open up in second chronicles chapter 6 solomon's reign and in second chronicles chapter 6 the construction project is completed and solomon is dedicating the temple and he makes the comment second chronicles 6 in verse 18 okay The word is confirmed that God said, but will God, 2 Chronicles 6, 18, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? He's dedicating this massive temple, this beautiful temple, a wonder of the world. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And at the end of 2 Chronicles 6, his prayer concludes in verse 40. Now, O oh my God, verse 40, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O oh Lord God, and go to your resting place you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. That's right there out of Psalm 132. And how these connect together. Now back to Psalm, Psalm 132. We see the blessing. We see the blessing of David. And in this Psalm 132, the only mention of the Ark of the Covenant in the entire book of Psalms is right here. It's in this Psalm. The Ark was a symbol of God's presence among his people, his faithfulness. They carried it. Inside of the Ark were reminders of God's past acts of provision and faithfulness and of goodness. And so in Psalm 132, he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, in verse three, I will not enter my house. I will not get in my, I will not give. These are all like super, I'm gonna do this, okay? I am promise I'm gonna do this, and he couldn't do it. But verse six says, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. Talking about the ark. We found it in the fields of Jer. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. What is going on here? Ephrathah. Does that sound familiar? 1 Samuel 17, 12, God was beginning to do something again in Israel and his people through the ministry of Samuel the prophet. He was sent out to Jesse's house. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judea named Jesse. Eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Ephrathah. God's beginning to work, and then it says, we found it. Okay, so this, verses six and seven, are like four steps to a stair moving up. Behold, we heard of it. Oh, we heard about it. Hey, did you hear? We found the ark. We found it in the fields of Jer. Why is it out in the fields? Of Understand this. It was out in, the, in a house in the woods for about a 100 years. Why? In 1 Samuel four, five, and six, Eli is the priest, two wicked sons. Eli is the priest. Israel is in battle. And you remember what they they say, bring the Ark of the Covenant against the Philistines. So when the Ark of the Covenant comes into the battle, all of the Israelites, cheer, we're going to win now. Because like a rabbit's foot or a ritual completed, God is now, they wrongly believe. Now God's with us because we have the ark. You can't defeat our God. And the the Philistines hear this this loud roar go up and they're beginning to get scared and a Philistine general stands up and gives a charge before them. Like, you're gonna wanna be servants to them? Not today, not on my watch, not ever. Quit you like men, we're going to battle. And they did and they won. And they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they took it with them home like booty, like we won. Here's our our loot. And they put it in their temple, the Temple of Dagon. Remember what happened the next morning? They came into the temple and all the gods were falling over and they put them all back up, the, the idols. And then they came in the next morning and the idols were down and their heads were broken off and their hands were broken off, prostrate, prostrate before the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. And then what happened? People began to get... Diseases and lumps and all kinds of sickness and tumors. And the, the Philistines said, we have to get rid of this, this Ark of the Covenant. we got to get it out of here. And so what they did is they took young calves, put the Ark on, an, on a cart, and they said, if this of, is of the Lord, they've pulled these calves away from their mothers that are nursing. And then they say, if they go away from us and not back to their moms, their mothers, then we'll know this is of God. And they let the cart go, and the thing went right over the hillside back to Israel. And there are the Israelites, and they look out over the hillside, and here comes the cart with the Ark of the Covenant on it. And, oh, and it goes into a house. And it just gets stored out there for about 100 years out in the woods. Why? Because they, it lost its attraction to them. They didn't win the battle. It didn't help them. In their belief, God let us down. He failed us. They didn't factor in, God needs to do something in us. We're at fault here. We need revival. Instead, they're like, God failed us, so the ark can just stay parked out there in the, in the woods. Out in what it says here, we found it. We found it in the fields of Jer." He's in the house of Abinadab, 1 Samuel 7, 1 tells us. There he is, but the ark stays there. It's about 100 years there. And his house was blessed. And David says, we need to find the ark. And we need to bring it back. In 1 Chronicles 13, they're bringing it back and there's rejoicing. Bring it to its dwelling place. Now, in... 2 Samuel 6, when they're bringing the ark back into the tent that David prepared for it, David was filled with joy. Finally, they're doing it the right way. The priests are carrying it. They're not using a cart. They're not using oxen. They got into trouble trying to do it that way. No, you have to worship God his way. And David was dancing before the ark of the Lord. And Saul's daughter, his wife, Michael Michael looked out the window, saw him, and he he wasn't wearing all of his royal garments, and he wasn't acting like a king with proper pomp and circumstance. He was dancing before the ark, filled with joy. I mean, have you ever seen anybody win a championship? People that are worth like millions, and they act like little kids, right? They jump, they scream, they stand on tables. They do stuff that normally is like, that really wouldn't be appropriate, but they won. So who's going to tell them don't do it? Michael, Saul's daughter, and she despised him in her heart. And he said, I'll tell you something in a paraphrase. He said, I'll be even more undignified than this. I'm so filled, elated with joy of the Lord. His ark is back and we're returning in worship to the Lord. I will be even more undignified than this. I don't care what anybody thinks of me when I come to worshiping the Lord. And oh, that we as the people of God will come to that point that we don't care what anybody thinks of us, but we only care what does God say of us. What is his perspective of us? That is the perspective that matters. And this ark moves into the tent, and David rejoices. And John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and that's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And he dwelt with us, and we beheld his glory the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we come and we worship. Do you see how that moves up? You heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jer. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And Spurgeon says this he says, The best ordered earthly house can be no more than the footstool of so great a king. Have you seen some really nice houses? Some really expensive palaces, castles? Spurgeon's making the point. The best house we can build, buy, sell, live in, visit. It can only be a footstool to so great a king. Oh, that we will worship this king. Psalm 99, verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Will you read that with me out loud? Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Why should we worship this God? Because he's holy and he has made a way through the descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived the life that you and I can never live, perfect, sinless, completely fulfilled the law of God. I can't do that. Laid down his life so that we could be forgiven and took it back again. That third day, that Easter morning, and defeated death, hell, and the grave, so that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus alone is given life that never ends. Exalt the Lord our God. David, his legacy? He exalted the Lord. His legacy is not that he was perfect, his legacy is not that he was sinless. His legacy is he exalted the Lord, the Lord God. So what is our next step? All right, I have a few questions for us to consider. How does David's covenant affect me? Every person has to answer this question, and it doesn't matter what continent people tune in and join by. What does David's covenant have to do with me? What share do I have in David? Do I sound like Sheba? I have nothing to do. Like Jeroboam, like those who surrounded Jesus when he was teaching? We will not have this man reign over us. Do I sound like that? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Or am I more like David? What is my reaction when God tells me no? And I know we talked about this a little bit last week from Psalm 131. When God says a, just a flat-out no, how do I respond? David said, I'll build you a house. God said, no, you won't, but I'll build you a house. And David said, all right, I'm going to give everything I can. I'm going to prepare everything, the plans, the builders, everything. Here it is. It's all ready. The first home, all fabricated, all ready to go. He was so invested into it. And lastly, where do I need to grow in my devotion to God's house? The church. Where do I need to grow in my devotion? That I can say, Lord, help me to be like David. Help me to have that kind of a passion. And remember, Jesus, you said, I will build my church. And we pray he will do that here. Amen? Well, I'm going to pray. Then Russ is going to come. He's going to give an update with our missions and receive the offering. And then we're going to observe communion together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ Jesus. Father, we are all sinners. We've all broken your commandments. And in your love and in your mercy, you sent Jesus. And Jesus, you came and you lived the life that we could never live to defeat the enemy we have no chance against so that we could be given life that never ends. The gospel never gets old, Lord. So I pray to all who are listening today that as they consider that question, what share do I have in David? What is my portion in David? That they will say, be able to say, I'm all in. I belong to Jesus. Therefore, I've received the benefits promised to David and through his line, salvation and life that never ends. Father, I praise you. I glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.